Welcome to the HS Health Tech Podcast, which covers the latest in health and technology through interviews with disruptive health startups and leaders. So you are listening to one of our first 20 episodes. So first of all, thank you so much for listening. As you can imagine with the podcast, they get more and more popular, which ours certainly did after episode 20. So we started giving proper introductions, long introductions, and we upgraded our equipment and everything like that. So that's why you're hearing from me now, because we're putting this at the start of every one of those first 20 episodes. So I am your host. My name is James Someru. I'm an anesthetics and intensive care doctor by background. So I practiced for five years. I did loads of different jobs in policy and leadership within the UK NHS. I've run two different health tech accelerators to help startups grow, access different markets in the UK and abroad. And now I'm a co-founder of HS and we build, scale and invest in the best health tech startups. So if you want to get in touch with us, then head on over to the description of this podcast. In there, you will find all of the links to our social media, website, emails, etc. So click on those, follow us, let us know what you think of the podcast and feel free to suggest any guests. Hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hope you enjoy the rest of the podcast. Connect with us. Let us know what you think. Welcome to this week's episode of the HS Podcast. Uh, my name is James. You've got myself and Alex here today. We're the founders of HS. And this week we are joined by Shohab Imtiaz, who is a board certified lifestyle medicine doctor with expertise in innovation, human performance, and technology. He's VP for innovation at a San Diego based startup called Oways, which is an app centered around circadian biology, which, for those that don't know, and I guess if my medical training hasn't failed me, is the body's natural rhythm and sleep-wake cycle. So I'm sure Shohab will tell us all about that. Um, but first of all, Shohab, welcome. How are you doing? I'm really well. Thanks for having me on. Um, I met you guys a while ago now at HS, and I was really kind of inspired by the collaborations that were occurring. But um, yeah, I'm well. Awesome. So you've had a pretty cool journey. So why don't you start by telling us all about that? Yeah, so my journey, I guess, has been a mixed with a lot of risks mixed mixed with a bit of calculated decisions, I would say. Um, so it was basically um, probably a school where I kind of performed well in technology and maths, quantitative subjects, um, getting awards kind of coming nationally in the top 10 for statistics, IT and business. But then you have to make that decision of do you go to computer science at university, medicine? Um, or even economics. And at that age, it's a difficult decision to make. Um, but I chose sciences for A-level and decided um, to pursue medicine because I do love health. Um, and at the time, there was no kind of cohesion or way of combining these subjects. So um, I got off from Cambridge. The course was too traditional. So um, to my father's disli- disliking and um, going against kind of his wishes, I decided to go to Manchester because of the course being more flexible. Um, started my medical training, enjoyed learning about the human body and health. Um, didn't enjoy clinical attachments as much. Um, I felt like I wanted to be a bit more kind of cognitively challenged rather than um, kind of learning a lot of kind of repetitive tasks, what I felt. Um, so I decided to a master's in public health, uh, which I quite enjoyed the kind of reinvigorated 
my enjoyment for stats and doing biostatistics, epidemiology, management. So I proposed to my medical school that I'm not ready for final year yet. I need to go to business school. And um, that was a difficult conversation in itself. Um, the medical school wasn't too willing. Um, they kept saying, if do a PhD, and I really wasn't in the mood for a PhD. Um, I knew what skills I needed and wanted and wanted to acquire. And Imperial Business School seemed to be the place where I could get those. Um, so I kind of, after um, kind of discussing my medical school, I kind of made my way to business school for a year where I kind of chose modules which I felt I lacked in my training in terms of how to kind of set up a business or basic finance accounting skills, um, the healthcare ecosystem in itself in terms of innovation. And that was basically where my journey in kind of innovation or health tech, digital health began. And that was an exciting year because that's where I heard Ali Parsa speak about Babylon. And there was quite a few different events that being at Manchester or uh, being at medical school, I really just wasn't aware of. Um, so it got the ball rolling. And whilst I was there, so I signed up for this new Harvard Business School online, these courses on design thinking, negotiation, um, the fundamentals of business. So I really used that year as a, the training in kind of the core business skills. And that's where I heard Tony speak about this new entrepreneur program that I was launching. So the, I was very lucky with the timing, uh, with, with taking these risks to pursue these extra things. Came back to final year, um, quite stressful, had four months to pass finals um, after taking about two years out in a row. Um, so that, could be, that was quite stressful, not good from a lifestyle perspective. Um, luckily, got through finals and then went off on my elective. And whilst being on my elective, I came across the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, which was interesting because um, a lot of the, so what's covered in lifestyle medicine, the five principles of sleep, exercise, nutrition, healthy relationships, um, and stress management are the kind of fundamentals of health and things that I'd always done my projects on during medical school. Um, but we weren't formally taught these subjects. So completed the core competency course. And as I returned to the UK for um, F1, uh, as part of the NHS Clinical Entrepreneur Program, which I'd interviewed for earlier in London and got through, um, I'd heard about the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine forming in the UK. So I got involved quite early. So it was really, I would say, a, a mix of risk-taking and calculated decisions of where I thought health would be in a few years. And then just pure luck and timing of the two interests I had in digital health, innovation, entrepreneurship that I see as one um, area. And then the other is lifestyle medicine, health optimization, human performance, which really doesn't exist in mainstream medicine. Coming to um, an existence in the UK um, and that kind of those synergies formed at the right time of me starting my F1 training. Um, so that was how the journey started. I was always into technology. Um, unfortunately, hadn't apart from my kind of pursuing extra things, hadn't really been able to continue with training in coding or computer science as such. Um, but I did um, get really interested in data science. And at the point, at this point, I've taken quite a few courses. Obviously, I'm nowhere near um, as as um, well versed in these skills as someone who's done computer science or data science, but I do take an interest and that's why I'm thinking of pursuing some formal training on the side or maybe even a full-time master's um, because I really felt where tech 
and data and um, now with processes such as deep learning and AI advancing um, and natural language processing with voice assistance where all this emerging technology uh, and wearable devices meets lifestyle medicine in particular kind of the health optimization and behavior change with then someone having the, the business and innovation skills. I think that's where um, the future lies and that's why I'm trying to train in parallel in those three areas. Well, I think it's super awesome and, and your, your journey is um, absolutely brilliant because obviously one of the things that, that we advocate as much as possible for people who are looking at getting into uh, digital health and health technology or in fact anything to do with business when they're coming from another sector is really immerse yourself and invest in yourself. So go and do these things that you, you wouldn't have access to otherwise like uh, going to a, a business degree, um, you know, joining the Harvard course that you mentioned going and getting uh, education in lifestyle medicine, which is, which is fantastic. And, and it's interesting because all of those things that you went out and did yourself aren't accessible to doctors in the NHS, which is really interesting when you think about it, because in the US um, and even in the, the UK uh, with, with managers who are involved in um, the healthcare setting, doctors really should have more management and business training provided and also you know secondarily to that public health and lifestyle medicine which is so important now there's no nutrition training at all for doctors or nurses in the nhs uh, there's not really a great deal of lifestyle training at all um, what are your sort of thoughts on that do you think that all the things that you've sort of gone and got yourself do you think that would massively benefit the the healthcare workforce definitely i think it would really boost a your skills and b the way you can see things from different perspectives because working, well, obviously working in the NHS, I'm still working in the NHS at the moment. I'm lucky at the moment, actually. I'm on a, a bespoke digital health placement that I proposed to the deanery and they helped set up, luckily. Um, so I've not really been um, working in the hospitals or a GP surgery. It's more with the innovation and academic health science networks. But when I was in hospital um, four months ago, I just remember just thinking I, it was difficult to communicate um, what I had learned and the perspective I could see only because of my education um, and had these diverse experiences. I could look at things from different perspectives and the people in the hospital and a lot of amazing people who work really hard, they just couldn't see things from that point of view because they'd never had training in perspectives such as management, business, kind of how to be lean, how to be efficient, um, how to come up with new ideas, how to do things better. And um, you can just see how those skills are quite essential now for us to improve healthcare, improve systems, for everyone to, I think, be happier as well. Because in medical training, I think creativity is something which isn't bolstered. It's something which um, is kind of driven away because you're on this conveyor belt where you're learning these skills and ticking these boxes and you don't have much cognitive freedom left to innovate or be creative. Um, so I think it would be essential. So I know the clinical entrepreneur program has been quite empowering in terms of just the network and, um, giving you that passport. So a lot of the things I'm doing now, it's been, um, it gives me that, that having that title, it, it gives me not an entitlement, but it gives me a bit of confidence in that I can go to the deanery and say, okay, you're talking about training the future workforce in digital health. What are you doing? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a young doctor right now. I'm keen to train. Um, so I propose this, these are my interests, um, can you make this work? Whereas if you've never kind of seen how things are done in other 
industrial areas or other subjects, um, you can't, you don't really open yourself up to that because healthcare is very, um, you know, you listen to your supervisor, you kind of just tick these boxes. Um, so I think those skills will really, would really empower people to just think differently and help with culture change. I know doing the Harvard courses, especially just, so it was the first, it was the first ever live courses they tried. So you'd be live online with people around the world. And the way the professors taught were very different to, to medical school. And so there were MBA professors from Harvard Business School. And I actually enjoyed the teaching a lot more than the teaching we get in medical school. And I learned more in that hour and the way of kind of thinking from different perspectives um, really gave me an ability to kind of look at things very differently. And I think that's what's needed for the, for the workforce. And you mentioned nutrition, exercise. I think that's essential because we look at health as a sick care system and it's quite reactive and we don't look at health as a continuum of good health to poor health and how you can move up that continuum. So um, in terms of prevention, um, these five factors that I mentioned previously are the hallmarks of public health and prevention, but they're not being done. I gave a talk recently in, in public health and um, it was surprising that a lot of people didn't realize the impact we have on things such as loss of sleep being an hour to an hour and a half in the last 20 years. And you can just imagine the physiological changes that have occurred and the impact on the economy uh, and the workforce and patients. Yeah, that's, it's, re it's really interesting. And, and um, I think the way you've gone about things in uh, immersing yourself in uh, the digital health space, I mean, we, we sort of first met uh, when I did one of the early um, progenitors to what is now HS, yes. uh, it's called the, the Healthcare Startup Awards, where um, it was essentially me sort of organizing it when I was still working uh, as a clinician in the NHS um, and, and set up this big sort of award event to um, celebrate digital health. We had people sort of flying in from the US, Europe, uh, and, and was one of the last events at, Ken at um, the Roof Gardens in Kensington, which was quite cool. But I remember you know, speaking to you then, and, and you were working with an organization called Doctorpreneurs, which is oh, yeah. which de definitely recommend people sign up yeah. to if you're a clinician. Um, and that was originally created by Claire Noverall, um, who's now the chief medical officer at ADA. Um, so that, that's got a real, real sort of pedigree. Um, and it's been really interesting seeing your journey because again, I um, just completely randomly ended up interviewing you for that um, NHS clinical entrepreneur program. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> and and it, it was amazing sort of seeing, you know, all the stuff you've done sort of since I'd caught up with you at that event. Um, and I think at the time you were sort of doing a bunch of stuff, including, you know, was it, it was one of your relatives, uh, social media accounts you were running and sort of optimizing as well. Um, so you sort of had your, you know, your fingers in multiple pies um, to, to learn as much as possible. Um, yeah, I know. I remember that, that event was really good, by the way, in, in South Kensington. Um, I really enjoyed the HS Startup Awards and just the environment itself seemed very empowering. And um, I remember meeting you there. And actually, um, it was the start of kind of, I think, a lot of this kind of London-centric digital health these circles forming. And Doctorpreneurs was quite enabling as well. I was basically looking for any opportunities in the space at the time. Um, so I was willing to kind of just really learn. And then um, turning up to entrepreneur um, interview and you're on the other side um, did relax me, I must say. <laughs> it made things easier. It shouldn't um, have done. I was, I was trying to intimidate you as much. <laughs> intimidate me. Um, well, I think the taxes didn't work. Um, but um, no, obviously seeing someone in yourself and seeing your journey um, and James as well, was something that being a young clinician or someone down the path can really help see that, okay, 
these people have done so much and they've worked in such diverse with from such diverse angles as well as as whilst training um so that gives you the confidence a and then um these opportunities coming at once I, my problem was is that deciding okay who do i go with who do i become an ambassador for who do i join and i think now i'm a lot better at realizing which opportunities are better but at the time there was a lot of there weren't that many but there were different things that were coming my way um so I wanted to get involved in many things as possible, even if it wasn't directly in healthcare, just to learn skills. The thing that sticks out for me, mate, is, you know, you, you didn't just look for opportunities. You actually created them for yourself. I think that's what's really different from your story compared to, you know, lots of people that approach us looking for things is that you actually went and made that stuff for yourself. You know, you didn't just stick to the prescribed path. It was just all about hustle for you. You knew what sort of thing you wanted to do. You didn't, you knew it didn't quite exist yet. So, you know, you went and forged your own path. You went and created your own programs. You went and spoken sort of different things out that nobody else had done before. And I think, you know, for people listening that, that are looking to do their own thing or start out on their own entrepreneurial journey, you know, that's the, the bit that I would take away from this. And that's why you stuck out to us. And that's why we essentially brought you into the ambassador program as one of our first ambassadors, because you literally just had that drive. And I think it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts on that, really. I mean, did, one of the things I struggled with often was that there was no role models. And you talk about our and Alex's journey through, through medicine and the things that we've done differently. And it was really difficult sometimes because there was never that view of other people that have done it before. So we were always kind of wading through treacle, trying to work our way up this hill, right? And it often yeah. feels like that. So, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Well, that's very kind of you to say. I mean, I think luck and timing just play a part, but you have to seek these. Um, you have to make your own opportunities as well. Yeah. And I think that's something. So I think I'm someone who was probably quite obedient type of learner. And then I think something happened during my A-levels where I just kind of switched. And then I kind of realized that you have to see what's, what adds value in what you want to learn and what you're passionate about and where all three things meet. That's where you'll be successful. Um, so I think I went to try and get those skills specifically. So an opportunity I created recently, so the digital health placement hasn't really been done before as a foundation doctor. So I obviously last year, the, the topple review interim came out, um, and the Darcy review came out and I saw that there's a, they have both highlighted the need for digital health training and digital skills training in the workforce. Um, I was meant to be on a gastro placement right now, actually. And so I'm on the side, so I'm working this busy job and I'm not, a lot of the time I'm just sat there or I'm, you know, I'm not doing, I'm working hard, but I'm not learning. Um, I'm making lists, I'm typing. And it's not really something which I feel is challenging me on a cognitive level or I'm, I'm learning. A lot of the hours is just you're there on shift. Um, and I thought the academic foundation program exists and doctors get to have four months either in research, leadership management and teaching. And these are kind of new areas, uh, but there will be in the future um, with, with these advancements in tech, either a four month kind of tech placement or digital health placement, but it doesn't exist now. And this, these are the skills I want and I want to immerse myself in this area. So I took a bold move um, and um, it was getting difficult. So I was doing lifestyle medicine on the side part of the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine. I was trying to learn about tech so much news and information overload every day about what's happening. Um, you know, things VCs investing in digital health has gone up. And so it was getting difficult to work in my job and doing all these things. And I needed a four month period of where I can actually have the license to um, 
give my full time and effort to these endeavors. So I actually dropped an email to the deanery um, proposing using all these things I'd done, kind of my master in public health, business training, clinical entrepreneur program, all these different inputs, I would say, um, and proposed a placement that I would want and called it like a public health slash digital health placement. Um, and the deanery came back saying uh, they don't allow swaps and it just hasn't happened before. So then I thought, okay, how can I make this happen? And um, so I think the, the, the number two things I would advise is that, A, show that you're passionate, which was quite evident. Um, so I showed passion and then pulled together all the different sting, strings that can make that happen. So I was part of this new pro entrepreneur program. So the deanery had had an agreement of trying to, make things a bit more flexible with us with study leave etc and it's quite new so i knew i could use that then lifestyle medicine is very new i just i just was certifying as a board certified lifestyle medicine doctor um so that was up and coming and then public health background so i reached out to the public health director in the northwest um who said they would like to have a doctor who they don't have any they don't take f2s anymore but they would love to have an f2 in public health for four months so, okay, so he was willing, but he didn't have funding. I went to my hospital director. He was of the opinion that they don't, the deanery won't allow swaps, but if they do, because I'd shown passion to him and I'd had conversations with him previously, that's what communication is key. I'd kind of all, already, he'd, so in F1, he'd said to me, you're doing a lot of cool things um, and a lot of people in hospital probably won't like you for this and will probably either won't be interested in this or won't think of you as a doctor. So keep your feet on the ground and then you can carry on doing what you're doing. So I'd won him over almost um, as an F1. So I dropped him in an email, the Northwest public director, Tony Young. I'd met Dr. Liz Mir, who's she's the chief executive of the academic health science mm. network in the Northwest. That was by chance at clinical entrepreneur program. And I'd just in conversation gone up to her and said, would you have a doctor in as with the innovation agency for four months? And she'd said, we'd love that. It would be really valuable. We could see things from both sides. Um, and she, I was like, I'd be willing to do that kind of placement for free. And she was like, no, of course we, we would pay for that placement. So then everything seemed to come together. So I had kind of the funding in placement in place. I could frame it as a public health placement where it meets digital health, which is you do have an F2, you can have a public health placement. And then I had to just convince the deanery. I had my hospital um, um, director on board as long as, I could get external funding. So in the, the innovation agency provided that. So I was kind of completing this jigsaw. <laughs> it took about six months, a lot of different emails, a lot of phone calls. Um, but for me, it was time spent now is quite minimal compared to a four month placement, which is a lot of time where I can be doing what I'm enjoying and what I think I can learn from rather than being stuck on a placement I'm probably never going to use in my life again. Um, so that was the thinking of investing that time then. Obviously, even I, I was thinking this is not going to happen because I kept getting no, no. And, but because I'd made that year of business school happen, I've learned to not really respond to no that well. I keep trying. I keep trying. <laughs> I'm a bit of a rebel. I just keep trying because I know sometimes that uh, your intuition or what, what you think, other people can't see what you're seeing at that point. So that was the drive to keep going. So I think it's kind of believing in yourself as long as you've got the evidence behind to back it up that you've kind of achieved certain things or this is where you think things are going and you can kind of quote reviews or uh, um, things like that. I think that really helps you have that confidence to keep making opportunities for yourself. And I think similarly for O-Waves, um, it's so as you talked about role models, um, I think for me, a lot of 
the role models do exist in America because in America, I think people do undergrad degrees, then they go into medicine. So you'll have people from a computer science background or a biosciences business mm. background who go into medicine. So they're quite diverse already. And then for, from Stanford, especially a, a lot of medics do go into things like consulting, biodesign. It's very diverse in Silicon Valley being on, um, you know, the Bay area. So um, looking at America and looking at, I think I would say Dr. Molly Malouf, who is the Silicon Valley doctor, who was kind of doing technology and lifestyle and human performance for these top Silicon Valley um, founders and trying to optimize their health, um, you know, the self-quantified movement, biohacking. So that was something which inspired me. I was like, okay, it can be done in the States and doctors seem to be doing all these different things. Why not in the UK? Um, the world has got smaller. So why can't I get more involved in these things? And always that's what it came about. So it was an ESPN interview with Royan, who's the founder. So he was an MD talking about how you can be, you can't really, it's difficult to be healthy in the current healthcare systems with the night shifts and the shift in your rhythms and the workplace doesn't really enable you to be healthy. And then he'd become disenchanted with the healthcare system after his intern year. He went to do an MBA and after that in working consulting, he founded O-Waves. Um, so I reached out to him. Um, we just, he started talking as a mentor at the start and then things just grew from there. He thought where I could really add value to O-Waves and the synergies were there, I guess. I mean, so I, I love that story that you told before about how you actually went about innovating in your career. And, you know, a story like that, it, it just shows how trying to innovate sometimes is just equal parts ludicrous and impressive, right? I mean, one thing you said that one of the doctors said to you was that you were doing really cool things so people in the hospital won't like you for this. And that's, that's an incredible thing to, to have to say, right? And, it's, and we know that it's so true because as soon as you start doing these different things, people turn their nose up because you're not purely concentrating on medicine. Contrast that to the States whereby, as you say, they'll do computer science degrees or loads of different stuff before they end up getting to medicine. They've already got this notion and idea of collaborative working or you know adding in complementary skills so therefore you know if you've got a, a group of doctors and other clinicians that have computer science degrees they will obviously think about the systems in their hospital and ways to improve them so naturally a much more innovative system and i think you know you mentioned something like the top or readers looking for extra digital health training and things like that it, it just seems a shame that we have to kind of enforce it almost and, and we're kind of grinding the gears to try and get there rather than in the states where where seemingly having to do a degree before medicine it, it just allows for that um that collaborative stuff and, and different ways of thinking a lot more easily yeah the system needs to empower us rather than us struggling because the, the exactly. time and energy exactly. right we're wasting to try and make these things happen and see how it can happen is the process we should be spending that time purely innovating or being creative or and people actually, want it right we want to yeah. be doing this stuff we want to be taking time out and we want to be yeah using our time outside of medicine to do little bits. We want like the two days off to learn how to code and all that yeah. stuff. Like we, we want this stuff, right? And the system has to, has to respond to it, surely. Yeah, I would love that. Even now, something like where they bring on like a computer science department at Oxford or something and, yeah. and, and just be like, think outside the box and say, okay, these doctors are passionate. Let's a day a week. The system would gain a lot more from that, right? Longer, longer uh, term. But they don't think like that. The thing is, it's kind of tick boxes you have to tick off. And that's how the system is looking at it. Because I've even gone to kind of national directors and said, okay, 
this is where healthcare is going. Um, to Paul has kind of outlined this as well. Things like deep medicine, the book obviously being quite informative as well. And then wearables um, and devices that are changing, but the, A, they've not heard of them, and B, they'll talk about digital health fellowships and programs that exist, but they won't think, okay, where are we actually giving, where can we give the skills? Where can, can we yeah. give someone trainings of how to read genetics and then advise a patient or realize what the correlations are or learn about Python? And, and that's what I've been trying to push to people who kind of are in these privileged positions. But at times it's people have that, they have an agenda that's formed and it's because I think really you need the experts in those fields to be informing the NHS. And it's interesting at these AI meetings, how we don't have someone who, who has a PhD in computer science or in a specialism in deep learning who are kind of forming these new courses. It's more doctors who are, um, who always have blind spots. So I think we need to bring the best of the best and use their skills to train up, you know, doctors who can do these things. But then equally, as you said, we need the time. We need to be given that passport to go do these things. And, and that will benefit the system a lot more, I think. Well, there's, there's, def there's yeah. definitely a massive disconnect at the moment because, um, I mean, just in the past month, I'm, I'm sure you guys might have spotted that um, Health Education England published a 98-page document on... Um, supporting the workforce so so nursing uh, medical staff both around their development and also their mental health and well-being um it, it, you know if you, if you read that document it's it's very very obvious some of the um the, the conclusions that they draw from it um and then literally just sort of um a couple of days ago the king's fund uh, the nuffield trust and uh, the health foundation who are, who are sort of policy uh, body think tanks in the uk published a very similar document around about uh, around sort of workforce planning over the next sort of five to 10 years within uh, the NHS, which is, which is obviously one of the biggest uh, uh, sort of employers globally behind, I think it's the Chinese army and the um, Indian railway. Um, so, so, you know, the people at the top understand that there's a problem and we have, have discussed a number of things that, you know, aren't being, addressed within the curriculum and, and medics arguably aren't being empowered to uh, do some of the things and, and have to do, uh, you know, have to go out and find things themselves um, to sort of satiate their, um, their learning and some of their enjoyment. What do you guys think is, is the disconnect there? And for, you know, our, I guess, generation of, of doctors who are interested in technology and, and change more so than the innovation, how do you think we can sort of influence things going forwards? So, I mean, I mean, I, I could talk about this for hours. I mean, I used to work at Health Education, for example. So, I mean, I, I, I understand the pressures that, the, that they're under to change the system. I understand all the different moving parts. And, you know, one of them is the fact that medicine is, uh, well, you could call it a thousand-year-old specialty, a 10,000-year-old specialty or profession. But, you know, you, what we have in the UK are these royal colleges of certain... Um, like the physicians or the surgeons or the radiologists or the anaesthetists, the psychiatrists, etc. And these are, you know, in parts, you know, 500 year old organizations that have kind of like a, almost like an Illuminati to them. They have a, they have a system, they have a system of purists that are, that, that love their specialty and want to protect their specialty. And um, in, in the face of new technology, it's often really difficult to kind of, tell a specialty like the physicians or the radiologists or whatever that this new technology is coming in and they're going to have to reduce their numbers or it's going to make the workforce change and 
you, you can often get in, into difficult conversations around that. But similarly, the technology in itself is, is potentially going to change roles. I think what is interesting about one of those documents, Alex, is that a year ago, HE did produce a document that mentioned about a more generalist workforce in the face of technology. So basically, new technology is going to come in. It can, with all the processing power of AI and machine learning and, and hard drives that can memorize facts more than the human brain, actually will, will reduce the need for specialists. And what was interesting in Topol's review a year later, that, chain, that, that thinking had kind of moved on. It wasn't that we'll need more generalists because the tech will look after the specialisms it was more we need to double down and have specialisms in digital health looking after those specialisms if you see what I mean so you can tell that behind the scenes there there are these difficult conversations in terms of how we actually respond to that because training a workforce is so difficult because you've got to think 5 10 15 years ahead with the training programs that these people enter into before they eventually become consultants and then if those numbers aren't required it can cause a load of different problems because you've got people idly sat by or similarly you've got massive um, deficits and things like that so it, it can be extremely difficult to, to to plan all this stuff but i get what you're saying you know on the ground floor we want this variety and things like that the difficulty is how it plays out later on um and and how that actually translates into a workforce that can deliver care for the country in all its idiosyncrasies i would agree i mean it seems like even from a culture perspective i don't think disruption is seen as a positive thing where yeah, it's in tech disruption everyone loves disruption but it's more you know follow these kind of guides how we've always done these things and um, you've got a rich history to kind of back this up and it's not really forward looking. And yeah, the topple review was interesting because it talked about kind of the advancements of these technologies and how we need to adopt them and how doctors will have more of a caring role, um, which would be interesting because then are we saying, because he talked about how we assess medical students for these skills, such as emotional intelligence. Does that mean that doctors say who are more quantitative or maybe lack these skills because medical school at the moment seems to attract a lot of quite academic, very, the most academic people. Um, it's very competitive to get into. And um, that's one of the problems I would say as well, because when you start work as a doctor and now with things like tech going so fast, um, when you're working in this system and you're seeing your colleagues or friends um, who maybe went down another path and they're working for organizations such as google or tech startups and you just see the kind of strategies they're um, implementing such as agile working um, they understand like, how to be lean um, you have now in london you have all these new type of we work style places flexibility has come in and then also this culture of kind of um, learning quickly iterating design thinking and these kind of mainstream have become mainstream which didn't exist when probably when i was applying for medical school or i wasn't aware of it wasn't in the mainstream and now you're in a system which is a lot behind where i would use tech as a good example companies how they're functioning so almost it's not only more attractive but you feel like you could add more you can you can actually be using your skills and making a change whereas in the healthcare system as an f1 you're going through just the hoops and you don't have any value apart from you're the bottom of the pecking order and that's quite evident at times where i remember on my first ward round i was a bit naive um so two things one thing i came across was i was like wait imagine if we had alexa on the ward round how good would that be and i was just trying to 
see where that would happen, but the consultant wasn't too happy with that suggestion. Um, and similar with the pager, I got four bleeps at once and I couldn't possibly write down all four. It was hand over time. And the surgeon, she, she came to me, she was like, you're not answering your bleep. And I was like, I think this is a bit, I think this technology is old fashioned. We need a better way of functioning. And she was like, do I look like I care? Um, so as an F1, you really have no standing. So um, I actually messaged her a week ago with the new, with Matt Hancock saying how pages are going to be banned. <laughs> I think she remembered our encounter. But <laughs> <laughs> she wasn't too happy. She didn't really reply for a few hours. And then she was like, I have to see it to believe it. Um, but yeah, I think when these boundaries are being broken at different organizations and the way that with the, the, they say the gig economy and the millennial generation is changing things outside and um, people are moving a lot quicker development you can learn online now and with these changes it's just not keeping up with pace in the nhs and you have all these quite quite academic people who are trained to be doctors and they are realizing that that way we can go a lot faster make more of an impact help more people be creative enjoy ourselves in these different environments and that's not happening at the moment in a per se in a clinical setting and it could happen in a clinical setting but we aren't empowered or the technology isn't in place for that to happen and we're spending a lot of our time doing these tasks that we could be outsourcing or um, not having to do. Well, let's, let's jump in and talk about something that's definitely been disrupted and something that you're heavily involved in, and that is public health and lifestyle medicine. So um, I'm sure most people will have heard of a little company called Instagram, which <laughs> uh, has now been kind of taken over by a certain cohort of people um, who are influencing the general public to improve their lifestyle, um, their fitness, their nutrition at scale outside of um, the healthcare setting. So why don't you, you talk a little bit about how you got into that, what you've seen happening in that sector and what you're doing at the moment. Yeah, so there's been some crazy, there's been crazy growth in this health influencer, lifestyle medicine, um, even I'd call it Instagram section of kind of empowering people with knowledge and disseminating all this lifestyle knowledge. So I think the big ones in the UK, we've got Food Medic Hazel, who I know, and then, doctor's kitchen rupee he's actually joined the entrepreneur program and it's interesting because there's something i realized that doctors even the most academic professors um they're doing amazing things but the public just isn't following what they're doing or they they haven't got that reach or that following for the general public to know what is the latest research to stay healthy and it was these kind of uh, you could call them lifestyle medicine influencers on instagram who have these massive followings because they connect to the public um, the people who are kind of well engaged in normal public life and kind of they use entertainment and fashion and all these different areas that people may be interested to rope them in to health and I think that helps prevention and the lifestyle medicine boom really happened about a year especially a year ago when um, the, I think after the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine was launched um, and a lot of doctors hadn't really thought of lifestyle medicine being a thing in America has existed for a while and these influencers who'd been acting independently, um, they didn't even know lifestyle medicine was a term. They didn't use that. It was more nutrition and fitness. Um, and as soon as the British Society was launched and people realized there was a name to this, you got a lot of different doctors flocking to this movement and realizing, wait, I'm interested in this or I have uh, this interest and I can be working in this or making an impact in people from a public health and prevention perspective. Um, so that's where this wave has come from. And now you'll see a lot of Instagram doctors kind of promoting lifestyle. Um, and I guess that helps change generally for most doctors. But um, 
personally, I've, all my projects in medical school were either on nutrition, sleep, exercise. And I remember my friends used to laugh at me like, is this even like where's the evidence behind a lot of these things and there are studies luckily a lot more that have been done now which prove things like so one of my friends and he he's moved to new york and how he proved how 45 minutes of exercise three four times a week is as good as um, antidepressants uh, for mild um, to moderate depression um, so he did a study but the problem is um, the biggest problem is with this lifestyle movement so it's it's a great area to be in, in terms of changing that, that paradigm shift. But the, the factor which is important is behavior change. And that's something um, the training I think lacks in because a lot of people do know how to be healthy. Um, so lifestyle medicine, I think has a continuum and a lot of people are in the kind of chronic disease lifestyle part of that. But I think upstream, it gets to health optimization and performance, but behavior change is key to enable that to happen. But lifestyle medicine by itself, what I'm coming to the conclusion after being in it is not so it's powerful at a population level, but now we're learning that that medicine needs to be going towards a precision medicine approach and it has to be personalized and individualized. And that's what medicine is failing. And that's why I think lifestyle medicine can be more powerful if we can input people's genetic data, epigenetics, now the microbiome, which is your gut flora, There's a lot of interesting research with brain, gut, links in terms of mood but also kind of cognitive function and health generally um, the diversity of your gut flora um, so with testing with microbiome your microbiome genetics and then using wearables such as you know i use the aura ring to track my deep sleep um, heart rate variability which is a metric we don't use in health at the moment it's a good measure of your stress um, and there's a lot of devices coming out day by day. I'm actually trialing a device right now from America, uh, Apollo, which is using vibrations to kind of get into my parasympathetic nervous system. It, they're trying to do a clinical study on that. If you can kind of change states from calm, focus. Ah, um, that's cool. Yeah, so I can't disclose much about that at the moment because um, obviously they're not releasing to August. But there's, there's so much happening in technology where engineers and even doctors who've gone into tech are working out that how can we augment humans using tech and individualized treatment plans. Because why does keto diets work for one person? You have anecdotes of people saying, oh, I was amazing on keto. Someone saying I was amazing on low carb. And then uh, exercise programs hit, weight training. And the, the problem is that we are genetically built differently. We type one, type two fibers. We know in athletes, the ACTN gene. We know that um, athletes in power sports have variants. More, they're more likely to have certain variants of that gene. So with this kind of genetics making such strides, I know there's a lot of um, in genetics with consumer companies, a lot of things which aren't correlated and are more nice to know or things that haven't been well studied, but there are genes that we do know that have a direct impact. And I think lifestyle medicine will be how Eric Topple talks about a virtual coach and along the line, how we'll all be getting personalized lifestyle advice and that is only be enabled through things like ai and machine learning which can go through all these data sets and your data and then work out okay what's working for for you from your behavior and what behaviors you like because we're all different we all we all can't be prescribed the same exercise and nutrition so on a public health population level lifestyle medicine is doing great things now with more doctors learning about it and telling their patients that wait let's not just throw medications at this but let's empower you to be healthy earlier on and let's um, 
it's going towards a predictive approach where you're working out the data points of, okay, what things can I do now to be healthier, be happier, you know, live longer, you know, slow down aging, things like that. And as a result of that, on the, on the healthcare system, it reduces chronic disease, which is 70% of where our healthcare um, budget is going at the moment. So it's good from that perspective. But now with Matt Hancock talking about 5 million genomic volunteers, I like the precision medicine approach. And that's what's Silicon Valley and California. And that's what they're going towards there. And that's only really enabled by AI and these advancements and tech and wearables and everyone being able to monitor themselves continuously, creating all this data, our social behavior from social media being picked up. And when all that comes together, that's when we can really have an individualized prescriptive lifestyle approach to optimize our health. And that's what I'm really interested in because a lot of sports teams um, are already have been for years implementing things that improve performance. So as an individual in the public, why can't we improve our cognitive health, improve our, you know, athletic potential, um, on that side of the spectrum. So that's what got me interested. And then with O-Waves, um, luckily the synergies met of where we do have an AI machine learning lead from Amazon, who's our CTO, Rayan, who's a triathlete himself, and he understands mental health as being so important. Um, and he's an MD, MBA. And, and the team was well-rounded in terms of individuals. And O-Waves uh, focuses on the design concept. So we have a good UX design, I would say. And it brings together where tech meets lifestyle. And we're looking at college students and how we can improve mental health and stop dropout rates at universities. And that's where all the synergies that I was interested in met. So that's why I joined O-Waves and came on as VP of Innovation. Very cool. And the, I mean, some of the, you know, the research behind what O-Waves uh, are doing is, you know, this isn't stuff that's just come out in the last year. This has been, you know, I think one of the uh, things they cite is sort of a, a New England Journal of Medicine mm. article from 2005 um, about population level intervention, reducing obesity and things. Um, and it's, it's interesting looking at this sector of um, public health and um, things like nutrition and exercise, because we've had two things that really have happened. One is we now have um, these new what are essentially advertising um, channels and communication channels like your Instagrams, like your YouTubes, where, you know, there's always been a, a selection of, of doctors and healthcare professionals who have either through the media, through, through television programs, um, where uh, they've been able to communicate directly with uh, patients in their home and, and influence uh, people on a, on a sort of a mass scale. Um, and that's been most pronounced in, in the US with, with doctors plugging into sort of daytime TV shows uh, and um, talk shows like sort of Oprah um, and things like that. But now really with some of these new or um, not really that new anymore um, mediums, they can really directly influence people at a, at a much broader scale. Um, and then as you exactly said, the, the digital health technology, which is coming up, which can bypass some of the traditional health systems and, and empowers people to take charge of their own health. Uh, and track exactly what they're doing. Um, where do you see things going from, from where we're at at the moment? Obviously, mediums like sort of Instagram and YouTube are going to fade away somewhat um, with, with how they engage the public. And you know, there's a lot of, of problems around those particular sort of social media channels with things like mental health, which 
obviously falls under the public health remit. Um, where do you see things sort of going over the next sort of five to 10 years within public health and lifestyle? That's, that's a very interesting question, actually. So I think I'll touch upon a first um, that, yeah, O-Waves is actually working in circadian rhythms. As you said, that's been around for a while as well. The Nobel Prize was won. And it's just not mainstream in medical knowledge at the moment that our parameters move throughout the day and how circadian rhythms are so um, integral to our health. And then with things like Instagram and influencers, um, the problem is there's a lot of noise now as well. And you have, it's difficult to know what's right and what's wrong. And there's a lot of belief systems that exist. But, by, but Instagram and these social media sites, it's the best way to get to so many people, the general public. I mean, millennials love using um, these um, platforms and it's very quick, very easy, delivered in a good way. Um, and you're right, America is where it started with having these kind of, you could say, quote unquote, celebrity doctors. But it does help people inform themselves about health because people in this day and age need something that's entertaining. Uh, and that helps things going forward. Um, so, yes, influencers are getting bigger and there's a lot of health influencers. I think there was a guy from Love Island, Alex, George. He's got quite big recently as well. He's got, I think a million followers. So people like him, if we can use in public health for messaging, um, because people already listen to him. And if he's giving these messages about exercise and nutrition, you, you can easily um, empower the public and teach them a lot more about their health and maybe even inspire them to be healthier. And that takes a strain off the system. Um, in the next five, 10 years, as you said, obviously tech moves really quickly and platforms evolve. Um, I would say um, voice assistants will be big. Um, I know, um, it's kind of hard to imagine, but I think we need more seamless interactions um, with, with our phones and devices. And um, from public health, I think the, th the thing that I've learned is that the biggest impact is the fact that we do have disparity in um, people's economic backgrounds and socioeconomics, um, the, the detriments of health. And the problem is talking to like people in public health and my supervisor was that by doing all of this, are you making the worried well more worried about their health? And is there a bit, bit widening gap between um, health populations? But my argument would be is that, as we know with genetics, things are getting a lot cheaper over time. Um, devices are getting cheaper over time, or they should be, because how technology is advancing. So things that were only available to Navy SEALs or athletes 15 years ago are now available at a reasonable cost to the public and this will only get better um, so that shouldn't be a barrier for innovation using tech and then generally if we take the healthier people off the healthcare system and they can manage their own health then it gives us more resource and cost to really invest in the people who need it more so from public health i think that's important um, and with lifestyle um, i do think at the moment instagram is quite powerful and people are kind of producing their content but I think there will need to be platforms specifically maybe for health or entertainment that, that people can go to and, and learn that knowledge and they can trust it. Because even seeing doctors, the problem is um, you'll be having one doctor will be saying one thing and one doctor will be saying something else and they'll both be on Instagram and it's a bit, it's a lot more noise and you don't know who's credited or who's is saying the right thing because now Instagram is being monetized. Um, you can directly shop from Instagram. So what this means is that if you are an influencer, you have to be managing your, your biases. Um, if a supplement company or um, a tech company is paying you to promote something, 
um, you have to be very wary of what you say. People are probably going to really go off. So you can't be having biases to what you're promoting. Um, so I think that changes things slightly as well, how, how we view that from that perspective. But I think it's, lifestyle medicine is probably one of the most innovative areas right now because there is no real specialty that exists in the NHS in lifestyle at the moment. It's people who are training and doing this, this diploma or learning themselves. So it's uncharted waters, um, but I see the great potential because that's where the, the fundamentals of health are formed. And that's why 70% of chronic disease can be prevented. And that's such a big saving. But in terms of tech, I think voice assistants and eventually our fridges will become smarter, you know, exercise plans that we can fit in because with always we say, we see time as the biggest problem with being healthy. We, we are so connected and we have so much information being thrown at us all the time that we almost suffer from cognitive fatigue and our decision-making becomes poor. That's when we reach for these unhealthy things. So I think having a virtual coach, how Topol says, will be long-term. But in the near future, I think there'll be more platforms around voice and seamless interactions, which will help guide more evidence-based lifestyle to the consumer and patient. Yeah, no, I think um, you, know, you make some really, really good points there. Um, voice platforms, 100%, you know, that plugs in across all the stuff you've talked about where it's, uh, you, can, you can bring in your personalization, you can plug into multiple different devices around your home, and um, that can form part of your, your personalized virtual coach. Um, the, I, mean, I, th I think you made some really good points about sort of Instagram. And I think, you know, for people listening, um, definitely um, do your research before um, taking on the advice of anyone, I think, who's, who's um, putting things out across just broad reaching social media channels because they're not specific for healthcare and they're not vertical communities um for certain patient groups so when certainly when james and i are looking at um investments into more public health or direct consumer facing products what we look for are some of those vertical vertical communities where there's significant domain expertise within the founding team so uh in one of one of our companies juno um which is around sort of maternal health um who actually has um uh, dr zoe williams he's uh, a GP, um, what, a, what her formal yeah. title is, celebrity GP. Yeah, yeah that's um, it. Um, who, who I know you know very well. So, you know, they're doing some awesome stuff um, with, with validated evidence for a, a specific community. Mm. Um, and I think that is really where people want to be going for their medical advice rather than some more generalist things um, where, where, again, you know, the, the key with, with medicine and, and with any sort of innovation is what's what's the evidence behind what you're doing and, and what's the impact um rather than just using advertising mm. platforms like like your instagram your youtubes um but it, tell, tell us tell us what you're doing at, at o waves as well at the moment what's what's going on there uh, thanks for asking but you're you're right as well um it is difficult isn't it because you want to get your innovation out there and advertising mediums are the way to do it and you're competing with um at times these other companies who may not be healthcare but they're kind of delving into health and they're using all these strategies. So it's where do you draw that line? Um, but yes, evidence is key, but equally, so Calm obviously hit that billion dollar valuation as of a few weeks ago. And it's, it's a mindfulness app for those who don't know. And there's some, there seems to be something missing in the healthcare system that people are resorting to mindfulness apps and it's making a difference to them because then that many people won't be using it. But then I've not looked into it, but I don't know how many 
clinical trials CALM has carried out. But it'd be interesting to see if, the, if, if there is evidence. Um, but you're right, for the more specific medical things, we definitely 100% need evidence. Um, in lifestyle, I think for some things, you do, need, you do need trials and over time, you do need to prove the concept. But um, for some things where studies already exist, um, I think you need to kind of focus on the behavioral aspect and the UX design and how you actually get people using that app and be healthier. Uh, and I think that's what Calm's done really well. It's used um, a range of techniques to get people using the app and adopting it. And, and I think that's where lifestyle lies because it's, you can have an amazing app, but it's too complicated or people don't understand half the things on it they're not going to use it. So I think that's first. And then you carry it out in the lifestyle space because you are trying to improve people's health. And yeah, with O-Waves. Um, so O-Waves has been, um, I mean, again, I think I've been lucky how the connections were made as I explained earlier, but yeah, so working around the five areas of lifestyle medicine, which are sleep, exercise, nutrition, socializing, um, and stress management. So O-Waves was set up um, first as a hardware company, as a wearable, and then pivoted into software. Um, because we realized that um, software is what enables a lot of people. It removes the barriers for entry um, because most people do have smartphones in this day and age and a wearable can be costly to buy. And so we designed an app, an app which focuses around circadian rhythms, which is the time you wake up and the different, and the time you sleep and the different patterns and rhythms in your human body of how the body clock functions. Um, so every organ in our body has its own physiology. Um, and is most efficient at different times. So then we looked at how we could create a nice design. So we have a Scott, who's our chief design officer, uh, who's been, even companies like Adobe have been looking to get as part of their team. So we have an amazing designer, as you said, the multi-disciplinary team really helps. So we came up with a great design. Um, and the problem was with lifestyle was time, time efficiency, time scarcity. Mental health was increasing in college students. Um, um, quite high rates of depression and anxiety which causes students to drop out so that was the kind of problem uh, we wanted to use lifestyle and tech how to solve this so really came out with a calendar planning app with a good ux design initially and that enables people to plan their health activities and with that um, it enables people to realize the stats of how much they're sleeping it's integrated with the Apple Watch, so we can send emojis to the Apple Watch and you realize it's time to meet a friend or um, exercise. And so you're making sure you're balancing your life and you're realizing that all five factors are being hit. With that, we started mapping days of people like Elon Musk, um, um, also people like LeBron James. Um, I think they did Demi Lovato recently. Just people who kind of young people look up to or are influenced in the mainstream and looking at how they set up their day, what time do they wake up, when do they sleep, when do they eat, um, when do they socialize, so the, the factors, what do they do to relax, uh, what does their day look like? Um, so we gathered all that data and we started producing O's, which are quite visually appealing, and people can look at and maybe be inspired that, okay, LeBron James actually sleeps 11 hours, but then he needs to perform highly. So it's very varying according to what your demands are. So after looking at that, we've produced O's and now we're getting coaches and experts um so we've got experts on our advisory panel a from the american college of lifestyle medicine we've got people from computational biology uh, and we're, we're eventually going to look to take an ai approach of smart based activity planning and a few more things i probably can't mention on this podcast that we're aiming to do um, 
But at the moment, we're using the five-factor lifestyle medicine. We're doing a beta trial in San Diego where we're trying to prove that by people planning these activities in, in their calendar in a way, and a coach checking in with them from our platform can help improve adoption of healthy behaviors and therefore reduce mental health in the student population. Um, that's what the aim is, because if we can help the next generation be healthier and reduce this increased burden of mental health, I think we can really make an impact. And we've got a few parallels, obviously being VP of Innovation, where I want to take our waves and I really think we can make a difference. Um, so that's really where we're focusing on at the moment, is to kind of prove that planning with this, with the app, and we are bringing out a few functions quite soon that I can't mention that will really, I think, help change how socializing occurs and how people interact with each other and kind of forming health tribes, I would say. Awesome. That sounds, it sounds really cool. I mean, I, I love that the UI design is, is very simple. And I think um, the, the, the comparative nature of, of um, what you're doing with bringing celebrities is, is playing off, you know, everything we've talked about again, the kind of influencer um, social um, uh, sort of conditioning as well, which, which is really, really cool. Um, there, is that sort of quite popular over in the UK and Europe or is it mainly still in the US at the moment? Yeah, so that's interesting because um, it's, it's, we're still, so we've not really marketed that strongly yet. We've got good social media, but at the moment, it's really about our beta study and really proving to college administrators that we can um, prove the concept. Um, so yeah, we have had um, about um, 350,000 downloads with a number one app for the keyword wellness in the terms of SEO search, um, it comes up. Um, and we've got downloads from across the world, a lot in the Far East as well, interestingly. Um, so at the moment, our focus isn't really about, um, so we want more people using the app and we want people to use O-Wave, give us feedback. And that's where we launched the Body Clock podcast as well. Um, and our website, but at the moment, we're just building and proving the concept um, as we go along. Um, and that's interesting because we have a concept in O-Waves where Ikigai, where your kind of passions meet what you're good at, uh, where all these kind of like a Venn diagram, everything meets. And that's what you kind of explains where kind of behavior and influencer or people want to follow meets the kind of hardcore lifestyle prevention advice. And then where that can be enabled by tech and health. And I think where all those three things meet, that's what, and that's where the vision of O-Waves um, matches my personal interests. And that's why um, I love working for at O-Waves and with the team and being part of the core team. Um, but yeah, the States has obviously more traction because it is a San Diego based company, but we are looking at more the, uh, as me working from the UK now, probably the only person with O-Waves who's got this British perspective. Um, we are looking at coming to the UK and being a bit more um, open to partnerships, but also um, going to universities here. I presented at Imperial Sleep Week recently and um, she's a respiratory physician and a specialist in sleep. She was an amazing uh, doctor and she was very interested in what we're doing. So yes, we are trying to expand a bit more globally as well. Very cool, very cool. And great for you to, to you know, get the opportunity to do something in the UK and be, I guess, the, the only sort of employee over yeah. in Europe, right? So it's super exciting. Um, well, listen, man, it's been, it's always a pleasure to speak to you. And, um, you know, we don't want to keep you around for, for too much longer this morning. Um, but just before we, we sign off, um, we'll sort of hand back over, um, to our guests. So, um, for people who might be listening, who want to find out a little bit more about, um, the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine and O-Waves, um, you can sort of let them know 
contact details and um, if you've got any sort of asks or shout outs for, for O-Waves or anything else, um, the next sort of two, three minutes, all, all yours. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me on it. I mean, it's been an amazing experience and I'm glad to be reconnecting with you guys and what you're doing with HS. Um, and thanks for the opportunity as well. Um, so I would say British Society of Lifestyle Medicine definitely worth getting involved with. A um, bunch of amazing people working together to kind of push this lifestyle prevention agenda. And the more people who join, the better it will be for our population. So you can type in the BSLM on Google and the first link will be our website and you can sign up. Um, and then um, in terms of O-Waves, um, so you can download the app on the Apple Store. We have a website you can go check out, um, find and follow experts. And we've had quite a few interesting podcast guests from places like Silicon Valley, health experts as well, coaches. Um, so you can listen to the Body Clock podcast, which is on iTunes. And um, something that I would say I would find it for the listeners would be interesting is that I think I follow Clayton Christensen, the Harvard Business School Professor of Innovation. And what I found, something that helped me be disruptive or going against the grain would be kind of his quotes on what he says is motivation is the catalyzing ingredient for every successful innovation. And the same is true for learning. So if you see learning in an innovative way and you kind of approach learning in that way as well, I think you'll be more intrinsically motivated and one thing drives another and then you have this hunger to keep improving yourself and learning and applying what you're doing. And I think that really breeds innovation. Um, and that's the concept of, um, and then finding work in what you enjoy is important. So with O-Waves that works for me, um, but it might not work for everyone. Everyone has different interests and I think it's important to align your interests and passions to what you're doing. So uh, finishing off with O-Waves, um, we are at the moment centered around lifestyle medicine, helping young people and the general public kind of track, plan their activities. Um, we're integrated with Google Calendar now as well as Outlook. So all your activities or plans or events you've planned can seamlessly be integrated into the O-Waves app. Um, you can pick your picture for the day. We have standard O's that you can use of when you start your day, when you end your day, and you can populate the app how you like. Um, and we are moving quite quickly with the changes we're implementing in the app. We've got some quite exciting things coming quite soon. So if you have any guests you want on the podcast or as experts on our website, please email team at owaves.com. Um, and that's where you can get involved and help us in our user design journey and how we can kind of use O-Waves to empower people to be healthier and, and take care of themselves. Um, so that's what I would say to end. <laughs> awesome, man. No, I think great quote. And um, yeah, it sort of reflects back on you with all the stuff you've been doing. So yeah, looking forward to, to catching up again. <laughs> seeing what else you've been up to. No, thank you. And you, they can follow me at Dr. Saheb, MTR spelled D-R-S-O-H-A-I-B-I-M-T-I-A-Z on Instagram, <laughs> which is what we've talked a lot about on this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Nice plug, nice plug. Awesome, <laughs> awesome buddy. Great Thanks. speaking to you. And, Great uh, speaking to you. Yeah, Thanks a lot. Thank you.